Hello, listeners. This kicks off the final five podcasts for this season. Life got in the way and the podcast went a bit off the rails, so I decided to try a different approach for these final episodes. The first difference, these are scripted. When I started the podcast, I did some scripted stuff, but it never sounded as authentic as the improvised recording. Additionally, writing out a script is time-consuming. It was far easier to record a whole bunch of stuff and then edit it down directly. That too, however, became a problem because while the recording was faster without the script writing phase, the editing was much, much longer and really started to catch up with me. The format for podcasting about this final adventure doesn't go into things session by session, and that's the second difference. These five episodes cover the ultimate mission of the the season, the adventure at the town of Borlane, including the temple and potentially the capture of the Balnexicon and Voss's resurrection. As of this recording, we're already four game sessions deep, and while I've recorded a couple of my standard audio journals for those sessions, I did manage to get behind. Rather than fake it and press forward to pretend that the, there was a recording done ahead of a game session, I thought this was a way to step back and maybe take a broader view on how approaching the milestone rather than the session would work. The party's about to gain level 5. That's a significant leap in power level. Third level spells, multiple attacks, increased proficiencies. More than that, the group is catching up on two big story points, Agora Maya and the Balnexicon. If you've been listening, you'll be familiar with those and how important they are to the story. I wanted this to be a big deal. I wanted the players to feel as if they really earned that fifth level power up. At every turn, I increased the difficulty and they would spin us into some new direction. When I started this game, I said it was about preparing to improvise. That remains true. Already, this adventure has surprised me with how the players approached certain challenges, what turned out to be difficult, and what turned out to be deadly. First up, head full of ideas pulling all of my wild notions together for the adventure at the Temple of Borlane. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. My challenge is often about having too many ideas. That may sound egotistical, but notice I did not say good ideas. I have a lot of ideas, all the time about a lot of things. I also possess a very loud and opinionated inner judge. That judge is not limited to criticizing me, though it is often nastiest to me and my ideas. One of the things I have worked on the whole of my adult life is curtailing that inner critic, and I would say being a dad to four amazing kids is probably the thing that helped in that regard the most. In gaming, I've been doing this long enough that I have a high degree of confidence, and I've built up my process over decades. Which is not to say it's formal at all. It's hard for me to explain it, actually, like tying your shoes. I do it on autopilot. One thing, however, is clear. It begins with these ideas. At this stage in the game, I have established quite a bit, and there are many dangling threads I need to address, if not completely solve. The Balnexicon dates back to the beginning of the game and is tied to Calda's backstory. While our tiefling wizard died at the hands of a dire crocodile and the gates of death, ultimately, his pursuit of this ancient tome became the party's pursuit for this ancient tome. 
Along the way, I suggested that the tome is alive and sentient, capable of taking over weaker minds. I want to highlight that. It's an idea that I like. There are lots of magic books throughout D&D, and on its own, this is a fairly basic idea. An evil book is also a well-used trope. But a book that is itself a threat and might even be an NPC, well, that piques my interest as a DM. I can do stuff with that. It's interesting. I can't say for sure if that detail will come into play in this adventure. It might be a hook for what happens next. So I put a pin in that. A more useful question is, what can the Balnexicon do? Do you think I need to know the answer to that question? Is that something that needs to be a fixed fact in the game? I don't. I don't think it needs to be a fixed fact. Say that ten times fast. While I may have ideas on what the book can do and how it plays out in the game, I'm far better served by leaving wiggle room in my mind. The Balnexicon is a powerful magical tome, which is either evil or can be used for evil purposes. Right now, it's the MacGuffin. We know it factors into Agoramaya's plans. I know how and in what capacity, but that's not all the book can do. Which is a great segue to the next dangling thread, Agoramaya. She's a sister to Rudwilla, one of Mir's aunties. She was introduced way back in the beginning, a beautiful woman who beguiled the last man to possess the Balnexicon and spirit off with it. The party learned she's a rogue hag from the coven, that she lives near the town of Borlane, and that Rudwilla thinks she must be destroyed. What does she want to use the Balnexicon for? As far as the players know, it's to gain power. Simple, easy to grasp, in many cases, enough for most players, but not enough for me as the DM. I need a better idea of what, why, and how. Not to lock it down, but to act as a filter for what the players face along the way. Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation called fiction lying, and he's not wrong. Fiction is a made-up story, and as with lying, the teller of the tale must know more about what's happening, things they will not reveal, in order to improvise believably. Agoramaya wants power. Fine. How does she get it? What allies does she have? What will she do when she gets it? When the players encounter someone affected by her machinations, what will they be like? How can it seem real? I have an example of this later on in the podcast. To make it feel real, I need to know why she wants the book, what she's going to use it for, and how. More on that in a moment. So much of the challenge here is pulling together disparate threads. To understand how I built Agoramaya's backstory, we need to talk about the adventure module I'm using. Against the Cult of the Reptile God is an old-school AD&D module. First edition, if that's how you understand these things. Except no one called anything by edition numbers until third edition, but I digress. Matt Colville talks about it in his channel as a great starter adventure. And it is. I used it back when it first came out. I've known for some time I would be using material from this adventure for my story. In that adventure, a naga takes over town for her own nefarious purposes. The heroes must unravel the mystery of the cultists and ultimately face the naga in her dungeon chamber. I'm replacing Explicata Defilus, the naga, with Agoramaya the hag. I cunningly renamed the town of Orlane to Borlane. Later, I would replace the naga's method for brainwashing the folks, Per the module, the Naga charms who she can and eats who she can't. I was largely keeping that until something better dawned on me as the players worked their way through the adventure. Intellect devourers. 
I'm going to discuss how I manage the dungeon in the next episode, but suffice it to say, I'm changing a lot and mostly using the town map plus some of the temple. I placed Borlane in my campaign map in the southwestern corner of the Rootlands. That's an important detail because of a random campaign world fact I've established. A great volcano erupted south of the Rootlands and laid waste to the mountains, but stopped almost perfectly at the border of the Rootlands, including Borlane. So this is the brain soup I'm managing at this stage in the creative process. First, an ancient but evil book of power. Second, a rogue hag who is seeking power and possesses said book. And third, she's taken it to an ancient temple sitting on the edge of a great wasteland. Free association leads me to question the role of this ancient temple. Yes, it's abandoned now, but what was it built for and why? Could that have something to do with Agoramaya's plans? Of course it can. The temple at Borlane is one of the oldest temples in the known world, I tell myself. It's built in a place of power. So the place is not powerful because of the temple, but rather the temple is powerful because of the place. This place of power and other places of power were designed as a defensive structure. They protect the rootlands in this world from outside threats. When the volcano exploded, these places of power held back the foul energy and saved the rootlands and its people. So what would interest a power-hungry evil hag about such a place? With the Balnexicon, I told myself, Agoramaya could undo the power of the temple and allow the foul energies of the wasteland to bleed forth and devour the land. These energies are connected with the long-forgotten serpent god, Vasuki. By doing this, Agoramaya will become a servant of Vasuki, gain immense power, and be able to destroy her sisters and assume her rightful place at the right hand of a returning god. Continuing my free association, that brings me to Vasuki. A central conflict in this campaign world is the re-emergence of ancient gods. It's the conflict between the old traditions under the god Anu and the new burgeoning religions that are going to be cropping up all throughout the campaign. What I could feel emerging within the campaign is conflict between various gods. Voss and the party are connected to the Morrigan. They have spent a good chunk of the campaign under the shadow of Semyana, and now a third god emerges. I chose a serpent god because of the themes of the old against the cult of the reptile god module. In a bizarre way, I thought a lot of power seekers with the means would try to get in at the ground level of a new religion. Why not? Connect yourself to a god and help them gain a foothold in the world? I did some online research and discovered the term Naga connected to snake symbology in Hinduism. It's actually not an evil creature in mythology. Unlike in Western mythos, snakes are not vilified. I'm guessing their ability to shed their skin casts them more as transformative figures. My understanding is that Vizuki is a king serpent and a Naga king tasked with guarding the Buddha and other enlightened beings. I enjoy borrowing from ancient myths, taking terms and altering them to come up with concepts for my game. These days, I tend to look at mythology less familiar to the Western world. I think this practice can be troublesome if you are publishing something it borders on cultural appropriation, but for your game world, it can serve as a great source of inspiration. Hopefully, it's clear why I'm calling this episode Head Full of Ideas. I recognize it's a bit of a hot mess. 
I have copious notes about this, but really these things are embedded in my mind with loose associations. These are the materials I will draw from when I need to improvise a scene or pepper in details to help bring a moment to life. Case in point, Vizuki led me to using the Yuan-Ti. It's an obvious choice, but per classic D&D lore, Yuan-Ti and Nagas do not get along. I'm throwing all of that out and leaning into this idea of the serpent as a transformative spirit. An initial idea is for Agoramaya to be transforming herself. As the party moves through the adventure, they would encounter various forms of Yuan-Ti, some with serpent heads or arms, and ultimately encounter Agoramaya as a hag naga. She's on her way to becoming something more powerful, an avatar of the serpent god Vasuki on Earth. It resonated with me. In fact, it's a tragic story from the hag's point of view. She was mistreated and marginalized by her more powerful sisters in the coven. In seeking to be accepted by them, she loses all that she has and becomes something else entirely. She gives up servitude of one type for another. I've not done it yet, but I'm really looking forward to getting into the details of designing a new solo monster for Agoramaya, the hag naga. The last thread I want to mention is Fearsmith. Fearsmith can be found in Tome of Beasts. He's a hideous fey creature I've been building up in this campaign since the party met Rudwilla. When I introduced him, I thought I would get a solid reaction, and I did. The party is creeped out by what he might be. Why I'm excited is that when I get to reveal what this thing is, it will not disappoint. That being said, he doesn't really fit. Plot-wise, he serves as a reminder that Ruwilla wants to purchase the Balnexicon from the party when they recover the ancient tome, and he's there to make sure Mir serves the coven well. One of the nastier things the hag asked Mir to do was poison Borlane's drinking water when he was leaving. Fearsmith is a reminder that if Mir chooses not to do as he was asked, there could be consequences. Beyond that, I've used Fearsmith to prod the party into action and keep things tense. For example, just before heading to Borlane, I had the Dwarven Ranger Constantine see Fearsmith watching the road before vanishing into darkness. He was able to make out that underneath his party mask, Fearsmith appears to have no face. Later in the adventure, as the party makes their way into the temple, Fearsmith appears again, watching as if he too is infiltrating the temple. Will he help them or hurt them? I don't know, and neither does the party, and that's kind of the point. Will I use Fearsmith in this adventure? Again, I don't know. He's a tool, and can be utilized as needed. The flip side of the dangling threads are the new ideas germane to the adventure. Against the Cult of the Reptile Gods starts with a mystery. The town of Orlane, as they call it, is hiding a secret. Some members of the town have been charmed into the service of the Naga. The characters make decisions about who to question, which of the two ends to stay at, and depending on those choices, get exposed to hidden cultists or ordinary townsfolk. The mystery unfurls before them. It's a great kickoff to an adventure, different than I had seen when I first encountered this. The town is well detailed, including at least one hidden mini-dungeon, I took this part almost whole cloth, more on how that turned out later. I did stop and consider why taking over this town was important, though. If you have a nefarious right to perform in the temple, why not just do that? Do you really need to take over the town, too? It seems like a lot of trouble. It's an interesting approach that makes sense mostly if either the townsfolk pose a threat to you 
or if someone or something near the town poses a threat. In fact, it makes the most sense to me if you need the appearance of a normal town to help shield you from some greater threat. One factoid I had established is that the Rootlands has an issue with undead. They call it the Rising, and it's exactly what it sounds like. When someone dies in the Rootlands, they're cremated to cut down on the amount of fresh bodies they have to re-kill later on. As a result, there's a fairly effective military force in the Rootlands who patrol looking for signs of trouble. A border town like Berlin would draw a ton of attention if it were to suddenly be abandoned or suffer a mass murder. I don't know if any of that will come up in play, but it warms my heart to have some logic to the situation. So, I have this head full of ideas. A renegade hag is using a ritual from the Balnexicon to take down the ancient protective barriers in the temple. In so doing, she unleashed the power of the wasteland on this corner of the rootlands in the town of Borlane. That power will also help to bring the forgotten god Vasuki into the world and transform her into a more powerful being than even her old coven can handle. All of this is the villainous plot, and actually little of it is known by the players. That's okay. I need to know that stuff so when the players do something I didn't expect, there's a story I can use to determine how the world reacts to their decisions. From the player's perspective, they're going for two reasons. To take the Balnexicon from Agoramaya, because magic book, and to resurrect Voss, because the temple is the only place they can do this. Along the way, they encountered the cultist in Borlane, and things got violent real fast. Upon arriving, they immediately decided to go see the constable in Borlane. My expectation was that they would go to one of the inns and then make a plan to sneak into the temple, but they were hoping to hear about anything suspicious which might point to Agoramaya's activities, and so, instead, they start with the constable. Problem is that he's one of the cultists having long since been charmed by the hag. They get a very suspicious vibe from him, but take his recommendation to stay at the Golden Grain Inn versus the Sleeping Serpent Inn. I really think Douglas Niles, who designed the adventure, did something sneaky here by just naming the safe inn something evil-sounding. He assured 90% of PCs would just stay at the luxurious-sounding Golden Grain Inn and thus be exposed to cultists and, in the original adventure, troglodytes. In our run-through, when... When the party gets into the Golden Grain Inn, Jarus the Bard starts openly discussing Agoramaya with his companions. Where the head full of ideas comes into play is in situations like these. The basic scenario is that the bad guys are keeping tabs on the party. They'll only take action if the party is a threat. Otherwise, it's in their best interest to let them stay the night and go on about their business. The secret cult can't have random travelers disappear every time they come to town, but if they know the hag's name, that makes them kind of more of a threat than random travelers. What are these guys up to? I had to throw together an encounter on the fly. They would try to subdue the party with poison. If they failed, they would call in reinforcements, and that would look like more cultists than some Yuan-Ti, intending to make fast work of them and bring them to the temple for interrogation. Within a half hour of starting the mystery of Borlane, the party was in full combat. Not at all what I expected. They ended up slaughtering everyone at the Golden Grain Inn, with two exceptions. The constable and an assassin among the cultists managed to escape. 
As the PCs planned their next move, I had to think off-screen and figure out what Agora Maya would do once she found out what was happening. Remember, her big concern is the military of the Rootlands. At this point, she's not going to care about a, a couple of rat catchers in the inn. Her focus is keeping the town looking normal. The PCs left town before she could reasonably send another set of minions to hunt them down. So she withdraws into the temple has her constable make it look like the PCs started the fight and murdered a number of innocent people. Again, her point is not to surge forward so that if the PCs presumably go to the external authorities and bring them back here, they find a whole bunch of strange activity going on, but rather they find things as they would expect it to be. So she withdraws into the temple, has her constable make it look like the PCs started the fight, and murdered a number of innocent people. The way it played out is that when the PCs double back to the temple at night, they don't find a whole bunch of exterior guards, but rather they find an ambush waiting for them inside the temple. It's a small distinction, but it matters to me that I have a consistent logic governing things and how they play out. In contrast to what happened at the Golden Grain Inn is the situation in the dungeons with the intellective hours. As the party descended deeper into the temple, uh, one of the guardians was a troll. I wanted to make an encounter that allowed for a little bit of role-playing and that was more dangerous than just a straightforward troll. Intelligent villains are more fun, so I decided to make this a troll who was infested with an intellect devourer. That means it's a troll body and all the troll's physical powers, but with an intellect devourer in place of its brain. It was a great encounter with the troll trying to lure them into this maze-like section of dungeon. It taunted them telepathically, trying to set the party up so two other unadorned intellect devourers could attack and perhaps find a new host. It sounds crazy, but it wasn't until we were playing through the encounter that it dawned on me that it was way cooler to have Agoramaya's control over the town be a function of the intellect of ours. So the party found the body of the constable, Sans Brain, in the maze. The price for failure is high. Having a plan and a means forward is great, but when a great idea comes along and you think it will enhance things, being able to seize on that is critical. It's part of the fun of dungeon mastering. It's okay to follow the recipe, but it's equally okay to veer off and get creative. I have to note uh, something that occurred within this combat with the troll and the intellect devourers that affects the campaign in a fairly significant way. From the very beginning, the druid Mir has provided a ton of information to be used within the campaign. Mir's backstory as a changeling, not the race of shapeshifters, but a child that was taken by the fae. Some kind of fae creature would be left in its place, and that child would be raised amongst the fae. And so Mir has this connection to these hags, Rudwilla and the rest of the coven. This has been so central to the campaign, since especially leaving Outpost 9, that Mir always held a very potent position within the party. Unfortunately, when the troll was on the run, the party in combating the troll did so much damage that it made a lot more sense for this intelligent creature to make a run for it. But Mir 
wouldn't really stand for that, and so he went after the troll on his own. The troll was badly damaged, was being run by a much more intelligent critter, who decided that it made a lot more sense to potentially shift bodies. And so when Mir caught up with it by himself, it attacked him, subdued him, rendered him unconscious, and then proceeded to use all of the intellect of ours functions to overtake his brain, teleport inside his skull, and take over Mir's body. So it is with a heavy heart that I report that the druid Mir is the, the latest in a line of casualties within the campaign. Since he's already faced the gates of death, the rules are that death is handled normally. And in this case, I don't even think a death saving throw makes any kind of sense because his his brain is gone and the only way to replace it is apparently with a wish spell, which the party just simply doesn't have access to at fourth level. Thankfully, Bruce is an awesome player who's been around the block more than a few times and knows that this is the way the cookie crumbles, um, and I look forward to seeing what his next character will be. As of this recording, we haven't actually concluded the the module. I don't know what the finale is. They're still in the process of, of, of dealing with the various and sundry threats. So Bruce will be taking over playing Nakiri, the uh, the Kenku cleric, as Taylor hopefully reclaims her character Voss through resurrection within the temple. More on that as we proceed with these final five episodes. Next up in part two of this five-part series covering the finale of the season is Dungeons Are Stupid. This covers all my issues with dungeons, but why they still matter and why I still use them. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast, the best thing you can do is help us extend and promote our listenership. Depending on the platform you use for podcasts, you can give us a review, you can like, you can click the heart button, or you can reach out to us on social media. I'm on Twitter at AnatomyCamp, and you can reach me via email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, no players were physically harmed during the recording of this podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>